This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Sky Blues Extra. Hello and welcome to another special episode of the Sky Blues Extra podcast with me, David Moore. And I'm joined this evening again by Andrew Greasley, my co-host, and a very special guest, Steve Froggart. Steve joined the Sky Blues in 1998 for a fee of 1.9 million. He played over 50 times for the Sky Blues and he earned a call-up to Kevin Keegan's England squad. Sadly, after an injury in February 2000 and after a season on the sidelines, he did call time on his career. Kevin Keegan was quoted as saying, he's a player I've always admired and for a long time and when I was a club manager, I tried to sign him. I'm sure we're going to find out much more about that later on in the podcast. But Steve, thank you for joining us this evening. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I'm sure our listeners are, are really looking forward to hearing your Sky Blue story. I want to kind of start back where it was for you growing up as a, you know, as a kid in football. Um, you know, were you a big football fan and, and who did you support? Uh, massive, yeah. My, I mean, my, my family, my dad particularly, was a, a huge football fan. So um, we lived in Lincoln on a council estate. Um, and the team we actually went to support more than any other was Lincoln City. And it happened to be Graham Taylor's Lincoln City side in the mid-70s that were very successful at that right. particular time. So that, that was my first meeting with Graham Taylor or that many, many years ago. But actually, my dad and myself were, were sort of Liverpool fans. My dad was a big Liverpool fan, but because you know, my dad never had a car until I think we were 15 years of age, we, we never got to see them that often. I think the only time we saw Liverpool live was when we went to the city ground in Nottingham. Um, so, you know, whilst we watched the games on the TV, I, I wouldn't really call us great fans because we, we, we didn't really go and see them. So I think really Lincoln City were the team we actually really supported. And who were your heroes as a kid, uh, Steve? And who did you try and model yourself on? 
I mean, well, my my hero as a player was Kenny Dalglish. I wow. just thought he was absolutely well. It was he was brilliant, wasn't he? he of he his was. era, um, as a man you see today, and all the you know everything that he went through with Hillsborough. He's mm-hmm. you know is he, you can see why he's uh, worshipped so much up at Anfield, both as a player and what he did, achieved there as a manager. And did you try and like obviously? Uh, Kenny was a uh, like off the number ten kind of off the striker role, wasn't he? And obviously you're renowned as a as a left winger. Did you uh, did you start out as a left winger, or were you playing in midfield or up front? Where did you start off playing? Steve? <laughs> I actually started off as a as a centre half sweeper. Um, wow. <laughs> but, but, but but I was actually most people so go sm- back, don't they? Yeah, <laughs> most people get that, pushed back to the defence. Yeah, I, I, but I was so small. That, that it didn't really work because, you know, obviously when I was 8, 9, 10 or 11, players were so much bigger than me physically. Um, and I was really small, you know, tiny compared to the rest of the players. Uh, that eventually I sort of got shifted out onto the left wing because I was so small, um, but very quick. So it, it kind of worked. That That's where I ended up. I, you know, I played a lot in midfield. I played centre forward. I pretty much played everywhere really as a, a kid. And that kind of transpired into my uh, professional career as well. I, I played pretty much in nearly every position, but goalkeeper, I think, in the end. And and you mentioned that you be, you began your career at Aston Villa as a trainee, and you made your debut in 1991. Just talk us through, you know, how you sort of got involved with the club, how that came about, and and what it was like to make your debut uh, sort of under professional contract. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the Coventry City fans will find this quite amusing when, when you hear the teams involved. So, basically, I started my career at Leicester City, and not a lot of people really know that. I was a schoolboy uh, oh. at Leicester City, and Dave Richardson, the the, the head of youth development, uh, moved to Aston Villa. So, we basically, he, he took me with him to Aston Villa, which was an easy sell because Graham Taylor was the manager who whose team I supported. He was worshipped in Lincoln. For, for everything he achieved because he, he played for Lincoln and he managed Lincoln during their, probably their greatest era at, at that time. Um, yeah, so and then, then I, I signed on schoolboy forms at Aston Villa when I was 14 years of age. And how did it feel like uh, scoring your first Premier League against uh, Premier League goal against Palace? And uh, how did it feel like when you finished runners-up in the Premier Leagues that season? I was so fortunate because that, that Aston Villa team was, it was a truly great side. It was. Uh, it, 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 you know, when I when I look at the players, it's it's easy. You get to my age now, I'm 47 years of age now, mm. and at the time you don't realise the players you played with or didn't appreciate the, the situation you was in. But when I look back as an 18 year old boy, you know, I played 25, 30 games in a in a Premier League runners runners up team, which mm. contained the likes of Kevin Richardson, who was a multiple title winner and, and cup winner, Ray Houghton, uh, mm. Paul McGrath, who's the greatest centre half. I think I've ever played with, and and in most opinions, he'll be up there in most people's you know top four or fives. I think of all time in terms of a centre half. So the, the, the place was literally a great place. Steve Staunton, everywhere yeah. I looked, there was just a great player. So uh, all, all you know, internationals, to, Steve, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, they were all internationals, and and it, it was bizarre for me because I was a scruffy kid from a cancer state. We we had nothing, and I always remember the first story I, I always tell about my time at Aston Villa and. I didn't realise I was going to be a substitute on Boxing Day against West Ham United. Mm. And I literally had one pair of trousers and the dodgiest jacket you've ever seen. Because I, I was on YTS money. I was on £22 a week. Mm. My mum and dad didn't have any money. So that was the only 
pair of trousers and jacket I had. So I, I got on. I don't remember. It was a bit, bit of a blur. I think I just ran around like a, an idiot for 20 minutes. Didn't really kick much of the ball. Anyway, when I got back into the dress, I had a shower, came out of the shower, and somebody had cut my jacket arms off and turned my trousers into a pair of shorts. So I was devastated because I knew we had another game on the Tuesday night. And I, my first thought was, I can't afford to buy anything new. I can't afford a pair of trousers, let alone anything else. So I've, I put the jacket on. I didn't moan. I went out, signed autographs with half a jacket and a pair of shorts. On the Monday morning, I've, I've turned up in the, at the training ground and there's a, a suit carrier on my peg. And I thought, oh, no, we've signed somebody. I'm, I'm getting booted out my seat. And when I've looked around, the, the captain came over, Kevin Richardson, and said, there you go, son. So the first team had whipped round and bought me a brand new suit, tie, shirt, everything. Um, and they got it for me because I didn't complain about mm. them cutting my jacket up. And that was a lesson learned very early on in football. You know, take part in the banter. Don't, you know, don't get up yourself. Don't get above your own station. Respect your senior pros, which obviously I did when I, when I was there. Um, and, and that was my first taste, really, of what life at Aston Villa was going to be like. And within the space of six weeks, I won man of the match on a live Premier League game. I, pl- I got called into the England under-21 side. Um, Ireland, I had a meeting with Jack Charlton about playing for Ireland because I had Irish parentage. Yeah. So, so the first eight weeks of my career there was, was just crazy. And, I, and it was really hard to take, having gone from being, you know, scruffy kid from Lincoln to play in a, a Premier League club with a full house every week, challenging for the title. So it, it was weird from, from being, for, for then going out and then everybody recognising you. So, yeah, I, I was very self-conscious. I, 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 was all, I was quite a shy kid. I was very quiet back in those days. Uh, and it, 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 it was, yeah, it was weird, especially as I was living away from home. So I didn't have any of my friends, my mum or my dad, anyone to sort of talk me through it. Because ultimately, I was a kid. I was 18 years of age playing in, in top flight football. And Ron Atkinson was the manager at the time, wasn't he, at Villa in that in that season? What was he like as manager? Oh, he was a character. Oh, uh, he had he, he had me in stitches all the time. I, the, the lads <laughs> used to wind me up because because I, I was the youngest. They used to they used to wind me up all the time because I was it was I was just easy bait for them. I think as an eighteen year old kid, you forget they're all they were all thirty year old international superstars. All of them, and there's this scruffy little kid from Lincoln who who just joined the party, um, and. I remember one day going to his office because Kevin Richardson said, bearing in mind, I was, I was still on YTS, but I was on about £30 a week. And Rico went, seriously, you've got to go and knock on the manager's door and ask for a new contract. So <laughs> I've gone, run down the corridor, knocked on the door. Now, for many, many months, we knew Big Ron had a jacuzzi in, the, in his back office. And a, in, and a, his, in his office? Oh, yeah, in his, in his back office. And a, <laughs> and a delivery of sausage, eggs and bacon <laughs> were delivered through the back door every day, yet nobody knew where they were because it, we couldn't have them for breakfast. So anyway, this one day, you know Ron's got the, 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 the Donald Trump-esque swoop, the hair? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So I've walked in. There's Ron sat, dressing gown on, hair falling off to one side, taking the biggest chunk of the biggest desperate Dan breakfast sandwich you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> and I, I remember him, he, just, he said to me, what do you want, son? I had no answer for him. I just turned around, walked straight back out the room. And as I'm walking up, the whole first team dressing room are crying, laughing, because they knew what I was walking into. Yeah. So 
things like that happened all the time. All literally all the time I was part of that football club. They they used to just play tricks on me. And, and actually, I did it then later on in my career to the likes of Robbie Keane when I was at Wolves. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, it, I think I think today they might call it a form of bullying. But actually, I look at it positively, and it turned me into a man. I was so quiet that I think they realised for me to actually make it and sustain a career, I had to come out my shallow wee bit. And that's exactly what they were trying to do. I'm really intrigued now about the the sort of wages. So when did that change and how long did you sort of have to um, sort of bide your time with the YTS money? Well, I was really lucky because when I, when I came into the team, we were top of the league. Well, sorry, we were sort of sixth, seventh, challenging for the top part of the league. So when... When I, well, this actually was the year before, so this was this would have been in 92. Um, so I played part of that year. Uh, and I say I was on probably, 20, I think it's £25 a week, something like that. But every time the first team won, there was a £1,000 win bonus. So you can imagine, I was desperate to play under every you know, any circumstance because if we won a game, I, I used to, it was, it was like I'd won, I won the lottery 100 times over. So, Eventually, there had to come a time where obviously my, my wages had to change because I couldn't continue to get paid. I was an England under-21 under international. I'd played 30-odd games as a Premier League footballer. We were runners-up in the Premier League. And, and, and my first first contract was £175 a week. You just mentioned there, obviously, about the England under-21s. Um, what was that like, being a part of that sort of England setup, and And how did that help you grow as a player? Oh, it was, it was such a great honour. Um and, and there was a story behind it as well, because obviously the Irish contingent, Steve Staunton, Ray Houghton, Paul McGrath, they were desperately trying to get me to play for Ireland because I've got Irish grandparents. And they, uh, Sir Jack came over, Maurice Setters came over, and then I got a phone call from Graham Taylor. And uh, Graham Taylor basically said, over my dead body, you play for Ireland. And because he signed me as a schoolboy at Aston Villa, and I was, I was really close to Graham even then, as a, as a schoolboy. And when he, when he left, I was obviously disappointed because we got on so well. Um, and he, he basically just convinced me, you're playing for England. And ultimately, I was English, my dad's English, and I always wanted to play for England anyway. So, you know, you, you make your decision and, and I was very happy with it. And I played a, a few games, I remember Spain, Santander, with the likes of uh, Jamie, Jamie Redknapp, Steve McManaman, and players like that. And that, that was brilliant to to have that experience at international level with some really good players was was, was uh, yeah it was great fun. And you had a decent four year spell at Wolves prior moving to the Sky Blues for one point nine million in nineteen ninety eight. How was your time at Wolves, Steve? Well, it was interesting how the Wolves thing came about. Mm. You know, if, if people always have said to me, "Why did you leave Aston Villa?" Because we just won the cup final against Man United. We, yeah. The previous year, we'd come runners up in the Premier League. And I could have stayed at three or four Premier League clubs. I, I even I even had preliminary talks with Liverpool before I moved to Wolves. Mm. And um, they basically, they ran out of money because I think they bought Stan Collymore and then all the cash had gone. So mm. because I knew Graham, I, the, the ne- I knew that the, second, the next stage of my career was really crucial for my development because I was, I was only 21. And... I could have stayed at Villa. I was offered a quite a substantial contract to stay at, at Villa at the time, but I, 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 what, I, I actually wanted to be a big fish in a smaller pond, if you know what I mean. Okay. Where 
I know I could never have been that with all the superstars that were at Aston Villa because you don't get the same levels of respect until somebody pays money for you. You don't get treated with the same levels of respect. So when I went to Wolves, Graham Taylor was, you know, brilliant. Uh, you know, I, I really signed for him. And, you know, Wolves as a club was a sleeping giant. They had this fantastic stadium, great chairman. Um, you know, when they were buying decent players, everything was in place for, for real success. But unfortunately, we, we failed a couple of times. And again, injuries, which is something that sort of plagued me throughout my career. I had a horrific ankle injury at Aston Villa. I had another shocking one at Wolves. And then obviously, as you know, that, that continued at Coventry City. I think I, I think that glass le, le, uh, left ankle was always going to cause me issues in the end. Um, but yeah, I, I loved it. I grew as a player. Um and, and loved my time there. It was just a great shame that we never achieved what, what we hoped to achieve, and that was promotion. Played in a, an FA Cup semi-final against Arsenal, mm. the double-winning Arsenal side. They beat us at Villa Park in the semi-final. So there, there's, some, there's some really good memories for, for my time at Wolves. Both my kids were born there. So, yeah, I, I really loved my time at Wolves. And then you, you made the move to Coventry, Steve. How did that come about? And, and obviously you made your debut then against Aston Villa. Did it feel strange to be playing against you know, the club that you were first, first at? Yeah, it, the, the, I actually I went up to, to Middlesbrough. I had talks with Brian Robson. And then I came down and sport with, uh, spoke with Gordon. Um, and actually, the truth of the matter was, I turned down a load more money at Middlesbrough to come and sign for Coventry. Um, and that, that was for lots of different reasons. Uh, my, my, my wife was due our second child. But also I, w- I was intrigued by, by Gordon because I'd heard from a lot of people he was a really good coach. Brian Robson was an idol of mine as a kid as well. You know, Captain, Captain Marvel for England. He was a brilliant yeah, player. But, but it, it just, it, Middlesbrough just didn't feel right for me for lots of different reasons. So Coventry just seemed to be a real family club where, you know, they had good players Gordon had real ambitions for the football club, so it, it, it just made sense for me. And you know, playing Aston Villa the first the first day, the biggest shock about that was I didn't realise that there was such a rivalry from Coventry fans to Aston Villa. I had no idea because when I played at Aston Villa, there was no, obviously obviously it was West Brom and Birmingham City for for Villa. Co- Coventry never really ever came on the radar in terms of a rivalry. So when, I, when the, the, the build-up to the game, when there was all this talk of, oh, you know, what's it like playing? You know, these, the fans are really up for this. I had not a clue. Um, sadly, we lost that game on, on my debut. Uh, but it, it, it was great to, to be playing back in the top flight again. And that, that for me, that was the most important thing. We talked about Gordon Strachan uh, just a, a minute ago. Um, what was he like compared to the other managers you worked under? And have you got any stories about Gordon that you can tell us? I don't really. Start. I mean, Gordon was a. He had a far better sense of humour than the television interviews would ever suggest. He, he certainly wasn't. <laughs> as a, he certainly wasn't as aggressive towards his players as he could be towards the the media mm-hmm. and as sarcastic as he is at times. But he was really good. He, I mean, he was, he was a really good coach. And actually, I think half the problem was he was still a better player than half the players that <laughs> played. Yeah. So in, in the five-a-sides, he was fantastic. He, even at the age he was, he was still a brilliant player. Um, but he, he had very, I guess, like his one of his previous managers, Alex Ferguson, he, he had really high demands. He, you know, he demanded the best for his players. Um but yeah, he, he was he was he was really good. I mean, fantastic coach. Probably, he was probably actually the best coach I worked with. 
Mm. Uh, Graham Taylor would have been the best man manager I worked for. Yeah. And Big Ron, Big Ron was like the most entertaining manager who just let you go and play. So yeah. you know, you, I suppose you, you you amalgamate the, the those three, and you've probably got the perfect manager. But yeah, got, uh, you know, Gordon was great, and um, you know, he, he was he really helped me. Do you think, obviously, because a lot of we spoke to quite a lot of ex players on the podcast about Gordon, and a lot of them come back with what you say about how good he was on the training pitch. And so, did you feel that your game came on underneath under Gordon? Yeah, it did. And the strange thing was is that when I was at Wolves, mm. I no longer saw myself as a left winger. Okay. I, I I was developing all the time and I actually knew one day I'd end up at left back. I always wanted to end up at left back. Yeah. And it wasn't until late on in my, my Coventry career because the problem is when, when you're playing the wing, sometimes you could the game can pass you by for lots of different reasons. For Say, for instance, you're playing a top club and, yeah. and you, we, you, you can't get the ball off them. So you, you're almost, as a, as a winger, you're a passenger because you, you can't get involved in the game. And then when you do get the ball, you're expected to beat 10 men and score a wonder goal. So it, <laughs> yeah. I, I always found it a, a frustrating position all the way through my career. Mm. Um, and big, big, it's funny because big Ron Atkinson, who I see quite a bit over the last few years playing golf and whatnot, he, he said to me that had I stayed at Aston Villa, he would, he, his plan was to turn me into, an, uh, into a left back. So other, other managers saw it. Mark McGee, I played lots of games as wing back. Um, it wasn't until I came to Coventry where I was playing as a left winger, mm. but but I was never I was never actually happy playing at left wing. It was I, I, deep down it wasn't my preferred or best position. It wasn't until the last few months of my my Coventry career where I had I had a frank conversation with Gordon, and he played me left back, and I was playing some of the best football of my career. I think in it, just before I actually got the injury, funnily enough, because I was in the England squad, and and I was loving life playing playing the way I wanted to play. Yeah, and, and right back wasn't a bad player as well, was he, Roland? Well, it, I used to, I mean, Roland was a, <laughs> a, a, a great pro. I, I, when, when I was playing left wing and, or left back and I was tearing up against him, I, I always thought, generally thought this, I thought, if I get the better of him, I'm flying, I'm playing yeah. really well. Because yeah. he was that good. He was an absolute Rolls Royce of a, of a right mm. back. And, but, and a, a real, you know, genuinely lovely pro as well, Roland was. You could not have met, met a nicer guy. And he was so helpful as well. But yeah, anytime you got the better of him, you think you, I used to think, yeah, I'm flying. They, I'm, I'm ready for the weekend now. Yeah, his positional sense was just unreal, wasn't it? Yeah, but it was even at the age he was. I'd, you know, I'd love to remember how. I think I actually played against Roland. Nobody knows. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I actually I played against Roland at Sheffield against Sheffield Wednesday when I was a young lad. And I remember him being ridiculously quick. I think he might have slowed by by about an inch by the time I came to Coventry, but he, he was still rapid. But is is he obviously he was more experienced. His positional play, he knew how to play the, the, that role inside out. So yeah, great great player. And you mentioned about the left back um, position. What was it that you really enjoyed about that when you dropped back there? Because I know with with a lot of left sided players, like you say, the game can pass you by, and you do do a lot of donkey work because you're always expected to be back for corners pretty much. And then you've you know you've expected to don't like you say beat ten men when you finally get the ball. Did you feel like it? It felt like if you wanted to bomb on, you could, and if you if you had to sort of sit in and take a breather, you could as well. And yeah, that's interested to. Yeah, the truth. The truth of the matter is, I I, the, I was a, I was a better player when the game was in front of me. 
Um, it's hard to explain. If you, uh, the pros, the players no, would, yeah. would, get, would get what I'm saying. So if I, I, I could ping the ball, I, I could cross the ball for fun, I could do everything with the game in front of me. What I wasn't brilliant at was when the game, my back was to the game. I, I, I wasn't sure. that sort of player. Where so if I was backing onto a player, I did. I, it, it wasn't my game. I wasn't brilliant at it. I didn't specialise in it. But you, you know, you, you let me keep bombing on as a because I could I could run all day long. I, I never never ever ran out of energy. So playing left back, I could pick and choose when I could get forward. And also, I knew I'd score more goals. For, I, I I knew I'd score more goals from left back than I ever would do from left wing, which I know is a really strange thing to say. But over my career, I scored more goals from coming onto the ball than I did when I was stuck out on the wing. Yeah, I suppose because you're expected to get to that byline and, and cross or or yes. cut in sometimes, aren't you? So whereas with with that, like you said, the gate you're coming onto the ball because a few other players are perhaps further on, aren't they? And yeah. Sort of, and they're laying well, that, it back. Or well, that was a bizarre thing as well. One of the the main attractions for signing for Coventry was Dion Dublin because I'd. My whole career was, you know, my, my, I prided myself on making goals for my teammates and, and my record at Aston Villa and Wolves. I, I, you know, I made so many goals for the strikers of the, of the football clubs. And I thought Dion would be perfect. Little did I know he was going to be sold literally a week after I signed. And before I came on air, Steve, I watched that memorable goal against Everton. I mean, it's, it's been considered one of the best goals in, in Coventry history. Just talk us through that and what you remember from, from that day. Well, it was a live, it was a, I think it was a four o'clock kickoff against Everton and we knew we needed a good result and, a, a, you know, a decent performance. And I think all that, you know, you know, in the week when your things are going well, you, you're feeling good. Um, and, you know, football's, football's mainly a game of confidence. And I remember getting the ball early on and skipping past the fullback and I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm in now. And you, you get that sort of confidence going. Um, and I remember... The ball was sort of chipped over. I don't know whether Big Willow dropped it down to Roland, and then Roland played a, a lovely little slide rule uh, ball with, on the outside of his right foot, and there was just everything opened up in front of me, and I was aware that Darren and, and Noel were to my right hand side, and I just got to the edge of the penalty and just hit it. Now it's one of those ones where either I'm getting a mouthful from Hooks or Snowy <laughs> in about five seconds' yeah. time. <laughs> Yeah. Or, or it ends up doing what it did, and you know, thank, thankfully, it went in the top corner. But yeah, I, mean, I was it, it, that was probably the best goal of my career, really, when I look back, especially at the you know the, against the team and, and being in the Premier League. But I, I I'd actually scored three or four very similar to that in my career. I'd, I'd won at Villa, won at Wolves, so I didn't score many goals. I was not a great goal scorer, but I, I, the ones I did were were not bad. Let's say. And was was what how what was the feeling in difference in in sort of you know provide you know being the provider rather than the sort of scorer or you know what did you obviously as a left midfielder a lot of it is to to serve isn't it like you said and you mentioned signing for Coventry was because you wanted to deliver balls to to Dion but yeah how did it feel was you sort of more as much at home if you like when you sort of set up a goal or scoring was completely different I just sort of. I was always- I was always almost embarrassed to score a goal. If the truth <laughs> is, and I, I, again, I, I was, I wasn't, I wasn't flamboyant. I wasn't, you know, like some of the players in our side. I was quite happy in in the, you know, in, in that role of, you know, delivering the bullets for the the strikers for them to score goals. It, it, I never really wanted the limelight. That never really bothered me, in all honesty. So, um, 
but all the way through my career. And I think it drove Gordon mad that he, he, that I didn't believe in myself as much as I should have done, if you know what I mean. He always mm. felt that I didn't believe in, as, as, in myself as much as I should do. Yeah. And the first, and believe it or not, the first time I actually really did in my whole career, and I was, I was only 26, so I was, I was coming up to those peak years of my career. So that, that period between 26 and 30, they, they were my, you know, they were going to be my best years. So when I went down to, to join up with the England squad, and I never forget, I'm playing with David Beckham, Paul Scholes, you know, players like that are all yeah. around me. And I remember picking the ball up 35 yards out in a training game, and I've smashed one from 35 yards. It was 10 yards further back than the Everton goal into the top right-hand corner against Ian Walker. And I thought, well, that felt good. I've just smashed yeah. the 35-yard th in the top right, and Kevin Keegan's seen me do it. David Beckham's seen me do it. And all of a sudden, I, 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 I felt like, wow, okay, I can. Oh, I didn't realise I was capable, capable of this. And when I look back now, it seems really strange saying that, but it wasn't until I came back from the, that England squad where I really thought, okay, I'm all right. <laughs> and, and, and I... And I came back thinking, yeah, okay, I, I love a bit of this being in the England squad and playing Premier League football. Yeah, I'm, I'm now playing in the position I wanted to be in. This, this, this next four years are going to be my best four years. And going back to the uh, Everton goal, you mentioned uh, Snowy and uh, Hooks. What were they like? Uh, firstly, Snowy like play, to play with, and, and then secondly, Darren. Well, the dressing room was. We, we had great fun. We, we mm. had such fun when, when I came to the club because. We had Oggy, who was the most miserable man in the universe. We just wound up all the time. If you could yeah. crack a smile out of Oggy, it was like cracking a stone. Honestly, it really was bliss. <laughs> and then, but there was quite a few tramps in the dress room, and um, and I, I wasn't the best dressed by any stretch of the imagination. But David Burrows, we used to call where he sat in that corner. We used to call it Compost Corner, <laughs> so, because I lived over in Sutton Coalfield. I drove over really early and I, I actually made it my thing to get in as early as I can to see what people were wearing and what they were doing when they come in. And the banter just started from, from that mm. moment. As soon as people started walking in, it, it, was just, it was just like comedy 45 minutes before we went out on the training ground and you know, obviously we got serious then. But we, we had such fun. And there's some great characters in the dressing room, great experience in Shawsey, mm. uh, Gary Mack, brilliant player, Paul Williams, um, uh, and, and then there was sort of the younger group, I guess, with, with Noel and Snowy, who were t both in their own rights, absolutely fantastic players. And given another time, another generation, either one of them could have played for England. And I've said mm. that to both of them. I, you know, I saw them recently at the, the, the Legends Day. Um, mm. And, and they, they were great players. They really were. You're listening to Sky Blues Extra. Bringing it back to Highfield Road, um... Apart from that goal against Everton, what were your memories about uh, like of Highfield Road? Why why was it so special to you? Because it was one. Of, it was an old school stadium. Mm. It, you know, like, I remember the old Derby Ground and you know, the baseball ground, Fulham, places like that. It, you know, it, it wasn't a forty thousand or all seater stadium, but mm. what it did do it, it retained the atmosphere. And and when when we gave a really top performance against one of the big the big guns. It, it was just bouncing. And, yeah. and the atmosphere, and obviously, when you play wide, you, you, you feel it more because you're right on the, the cusp of, you know, the, the, the stands, everything else. Mm. And you fed off the, the electricity that the, the, the fans gave off. So 
you know, when we did put in some really good performances, it was great. And I, for me, me, myself, I was really sad when, when Highfield Road went because I, I think the club should have stayed there. And I think history would prove that that probably should have been the case. Yeah, yeah. We, we speak every week uh, on these podcasts and Highfield Road, obviously, is always a big part of, of what we talk about. And I think, you know, by the end of it, we could all, almost be, all be in floods of tears, really, because it's just <laughs> such a shame yes. that the it's club, true. you know, uh, left left the ground but it it was a very special place it, it held in the atmosphere as well didn't it Steve yeah I mean my opinion of Haifa Road is yeah it needed a, a definite lick of paint and you know the corporates needed a, a, a bit of a revamp but mm. for the money that would have cost they, they may as well have stayed there because it, well, again they'd have owned the ground everything you know all the revenue they'd have brought yeah. in would have been their own and compared to what you look at now and it, you know the, the Rico is it's been nothing but a disaster, isn't it? In yeah, all honesty, um, yeah. you know, for for a club not to own the ground just makes no sense whatsoever. No, it, I think it's probably the biggest mistake in the club's history selling Highfield Road, in my opinion. And it's like what you said about it did need a lick of paint, but they could have revamped the the exterior of it, no problem. It's like the East Stand was only ten years old when they when they demolished it. it just didn't make any sense, did it, Steve? Well, I, I've always been, a, as, a, as a player, a huge fan of the old stadium. Me too. Uh, the, the stadiums that have retained their character, history, tradition. I'm not, I, I, again, I've spent a lot of time the last 15 years commentating at most clubs around the, the, the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've seen every situation, every setting. I'm not a fan of the, the modern super stadium. Um, I think Tottenham Hotspurs is probably an exception. That's a bit special, I have to mm-hmm. say. But yeah, the rest yeah. of them are very generic, pretty soulless places. And, you know, whenever I went to the old, like, Fulham, places like that, it, 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 I felt the club's history. Whereas yeah. with a lot of the grounds now, it, West Ham's another classic. I used to love going down there because, you know, the old bowling yeah. ground was, was full of character and vibrancy around the, near the markets and the station. And then it's, it's now a soulless stadium that they, they play at. and. Mm. I feel I feel for the fans because, of course, a, a club has to move on. It has to, you know, change. But I, I don't feel Coventry really needed to do that at, that at that time. Like you said, regarding character, it's just like the Rico Arena. It, you know, you have to get almost have a car to get there because it's so on the outskirts. Like Highfield Road, you know, if you could get the bus, you'd get the bus into the city centre and walk from Paul Meadow and it's a 20-minute walk. It had that kind of match day feel that the Rico doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like it's like an older, attractive woman. You know, you shouldn't <laughs> fancy it, but you still do. It's it's like that, isn't it? Regarding yeah. the football ground, that, that's how I felt about Highfield Road. Even you know, even after I had to quit and I, I worked there, it was a it was a, a place that I loved. You know, I, I it I served me with such huge fond memories. Um, and then when the Rico arrived, it became another corporate entity that had no real soul to the club. And you thought, I, I thought, well. Will they ever really fill that ground week in, week out? And the answer would be no. Yet a full high-filled road would have been brilliant. And I'll, I won't make any friends here, um, but Villa Park, you know, is a ground that I, I think, you know, for the size and the, the amount that you can sort of fit in there, the tendons-wise, but that's that's got that traditional feel as well, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, it, it, that is one of those special places as well um, where – it's it's traditional. You you look round the ground and you again you shouldn't like it because it's really old fashioned in parts. But actually you love it because it's retained all its heritage, history, uh, and and, and I, you know I think as football moves on, I think 
you know, fans will appreciate the older grounds more and more, I think, as time goes on. No, I agree. And and sort of staying with sort of happier times, Robbie Keane, he, he was an exceptional talent for, for Coventry. What was it like and what do you remember of him in perhaps on the training ground and, and on the on the pitch? Well, you may remember I played with Robbie for four years previous to signing for, for Coventry City. It was, it, it was really funny because I played at Robbie's debut when he was 16 years of age. I think he was 16, 16 or like 17, something like that, when we beat Norwich away and he scored a great goal. And I came off the pitch that day thinking, he is a player. Yeah, um, electric. And, and when I was sold to Coventry, Sir Jack had basically told me that Robbie would be leaving not long after me. Because they were, they, were, they were basically, Sir Jack wanted to recoup some of his money. And I think me and Robbie were the two most sellable assets they had at the time. So I knew Robbie was coming. I had no idea he was coming to Coventry. And I remember Gordon pulled me in the office one day and asked me about Robbie. And... You know, he's asking me, do you, his words were, do you think we should sign Robbie? And I was a bit cautious at first because I thought, oh, I don't want to get that one wrong. You know what I mean? I don't want to, I don't want to. <laughs> That's an expensive the, mistake. Made, gonna, if, 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 if you, we spend that amount of money on him and he, it doesn't work out and you look at me and say, what if this goes absolutely pear-shaped? Um, but all I said was, well, all I can say is he's not experienced in the Premier League. He's not played any top flight games. But he's probably the most talented young player I think I've ever seen. Whether that matters, I don't know. I said, but sure. he's got unbelievable arrogance, which I think you need to be a really great player, which I know yeah. I never had that, unfortunately. Um, and it, it, nothing phased him. Absolutely nothing phased the boy. So when, when we signed him, I pretty much knew he was going to be an instant hit. And that's, that's how it proved to be. Picture the scene. All of your mates around, you've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure 24 7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. In talking about Robbie Keane, he scored one of, the, one of the best goals in Sky Blue's career against Arsenal in that Boxing Day 3 2 win in 1999. Do you remember that one, Steve? Do you know what? I don't. My, I mean, okay. We're talking, my, my memory's not quite what it should be because there's a lot of games that people remind me of. However, is that the game that they played recently on YouTube? It, it was, yeah. yeah. Uh, the 3-2 win. Fact, uh, what, what shocked me about that is a supporter reminded me about me making a last-ditch tackle on Carlo. <laughs> yeah. Is, is that right? I can't remember. Yeah, 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 that's I, right. I saved a definite goal. but So I thought, okay, I must have been playing left-back or around about that area at the time and then we have already spoke a, a little bit about international career, um, but the call-up came from Kevin Keegan. H- how did that happen in that day? Was it just, you know, by phone and 
sort of Kevin Keegan gives you a call. Um, and, and how did it feel to, to obviously get that call up? Well, we, we played Watford on a live Sky game on Sunday afternoon. And I think Robbie scored, I scored. And we totally dominated Watford. It was a really good performance. And I remember Graham Taylor going mad at me after the game because he was, he was the Watford manager. So every time I played Watford after I left him, as he was my manager, I scored against Watford virtually every time we played. So let's say I wasn't popular with him again after the game. So on the, on the I think it was a Tuesday or the Wednesday afternoon, Gordon put, was going to put me in the office. And I'm, straight away I'm thinking, oh no, what have I done wrong? What's he going to moan about my performance? Because I thought I played quite well against Watford. And he said, uh, you're, going to, you're going with the England squad. And I went, yeah, good one. And he went, no. He said, it's not a joke. He said, you're going with the England squad. <laughs> And I went, seriously? And he went, yeah. And he went, so you're joining up with the team whenever it was for the double header against Scotland in the European Championships. And, and that's basically how it came about. I was in, I was in shock, if, the truth, if, I, if I'm honest with it. But obviously it was an enormous honour. I mean, anybody, you know, to get, to get the, the chance to represent your country, and especially for, for Coventry, playing for Coventry as well, because yeah, of course, because I didn't choose Middlesbrough or the club certain people thought I should have signed for, because um, at the time I guess they were probably higher up in the in the Premier League than Coventry were. That it was almost representative of Gordon and all the players that I played alongside that I got a call up. Because if if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have got the call up. And it, it, you know, it's like anything you you can't ever have any individual honours without the team that are, that are around you. So I thought I, I was so proud to do it for Coventry City. And I, I ne- the, the thing that struck that I'll never forget was I um, the first game after I got the call, we played uh, Bradford away. Yeah. And I remember, and I, rem- I remember going up to Bradford and when I got up there, I had three or four of the Bradford lads waiting outside, congratulate me. Well, one was Dean Saunders who, I got on brilliantly with when I played at Aston Villa. The other was Lee Sharp, who I, who I knew from my under-21 days and that sort of thing. And obviously, he played for England. So that, that was just really nice. But it was the reception I got from the Sky Blues fans when I came out really took me aback because, you know, it, it was amazing. And obviously, I felt their pride that I was called up for them because obviously, I was one of theirs. To have one of theirs called up in the England squad, obviously, yeah, was great. Thing. was yeah, I think it was great for the club. I mean, obviously, Dion had been previously. Yeah. Um, but but I, I just felt the pride of the fans. And I felt a real responsibility to my own supporters from that moment onwards for, for that. Yeah, that's very special, uh, Steve. You um, talked earlier in the podcast about beating Ian Walker from 30 yards um, in England training and Bex looking on. Um, when you went to England training, did obviously... Was the standard so much higher than the Sky Blues training and and some of the notable players? Who were the best players around England it set up at that time, Steve? I, I wouldn't say. I mean, that's very disrespectful of my colleagues because they were all mm. the top, top players I played with. So I, I wouldn't say the training was better. No. Funny enough, I actually travelled down with the incumbent England manager, Gareth Southgate, because he lived around the corner from me. Yeah. So uh, when I went down there... Well, it, it was like it was like going. It was like honestly, it was like first day back at school because I went down there. You go to a situation where you feel like you don't belong because mm. you go into a room yeah. where you see there's David Beckham, Paul Scholes, the two Neville brothers all sat around one table. I'm sat on the table with Alan Shearer, Gareth Southgate, <laughs> Nigel Martin, 
and I, everything's going over my head. Um, and it, it wasn't until the training that I, I felt comfortable. And when yeah. I started to do a few things well, and you know, I say when I put that one in the top corner, then I started to feel a bit more. As each day went by, the more and more I, I started to belong. And then when he named me as a substitute at Hamden Park on the Saturday, I really felt like I belonged. So yeah. obviously, you know, at, at that group of 30 players, I'd obviously done something enough to, to for, for great, uh, sorry, for Kevin Keegan to actually want to um, put me on the bench, which was a, a huge honour. Yeah, and, what, and what was Beck's like, Steve? As cool as he looks. Well, he only had one tattoo. Well, there's a there's a lot elongated story to this. So, um, <laughs> when rule is, yeah, when when, when so on, on the on the Saturday we we beat. Scotland at Hampden Park. So I think Scholesy scored two goals. One yeah, great header. Yeah. And, and I never got off the bench. Mm. When I came home that night, my wife went into labour. So <laughs> there, there was a headline in the news of the world on the Sunday. So basically I told my, my, uh, my, my lovely wife, don't talk with any press. Whatever they say, don't speak with them. So oh, nice. on the Sunday so on, on, the, on the Saturday morning before the Scotland game, the headline in the news of the world was Julie Froggart lies back and thinks of England, <laughs> right? So I've wrote, I've ringed up, I went, what have you said to the press? Well, he said he was your mate, you know, that one. I went, oh, my God. <laughs> so, all, all, so all the England lads are sniggering. No to the paper that it was, but... Uh... Yeah, well, I know, I know. So, so all the, all the, lads, all the I, I think I gave the lads a right chuckle. So after the game, Kevin Keegan's gave me special dispensation to come back, back, back home. My wife gave birth to our daughter, Leah, at six o'clock in the morning, I think, five, five, six o'clock in the morning. Two hours later, I'm being raced back down to, to Bisham Abbey, I think that's where it was, to join in with England uh, players. So, my head scrambled. I've, I've been on the bench on the Saturday night, on the Saturday against Scotland at Hampden Park. My wife's given birth on the Sunday morning. Saturday night, we've had a meal in the, in the hotel, and Ke- Kevin Keegan has thrown thrown like a, a, a celebration meal for me. So he's given me this enormous Jeroboma champagne. And my dining partner for the night was David Beckham. I'm sat on a table of two, having, having dinner with Bex, talking about babies, <laughs> tattoos. And, and, I, and I, I realised that he was on an entirely different plane to me because I remember one of the conversations was about watches. And he had this <laughs> enormous watch with the biggest diamonds on I'd ever seen. And, and like, when, I, you know, I had one watch that I was really, I, I really liked. So I said to him, where'd you get that from? He went, oh, he started giggling. And I said, what, what, what are you laughing at? He said, oh, he said, I've, I've been in trouble with Vicky, you know, this last few weeks. He said, he said, I've, I've spent a bit too much on watches. Basically, he'd spent about a million pound on watches in about a month's <laughs> time. And I'm looking at him and I'm, and like, he said it like it's blasé, matter of fact. And I'm going, like, different. this is a different world. I'm, 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 with, I'm with players on an entire different stratosphere to me here. Um, and, you know, but he was a really, really nice lad. Very genuine, great player. I mean, I watched him in training. He was sensational. I mean, genuinely, yeah. he, he had absolutely everything. An incredible player. Um, so, yeah, so that happened on the, on the Sunday. Went to training on the Monday, and I, I must admit, I was feeling a bit jaded. The whole experience, that the mental tiredness, my wife giving birth, and my head was a bit scrambled. Mm-hmm. In the dream, yeah. So, so Keegan pulled me uh, at training, and he went, he said, he said, I'm going to do you a favour. He says, you, you, you watch from the sidelines tonight. He said, because you look knackered. And actually, I didn't argue with him. 
because I think, in my in my opinion, it was the best thing that he did for me at that time. Because I, I wouldn't have yeah. been mentally right, I don't think, for the game on on the Tuesday. Anyway, so we we got beat by Scotland. Uh, Don Hutchinson scored a, a, a goal. Anyway, not a great, dreadful performance. England fans weren't happy. I'm walking off the pitch, and Kevin Keegan went. My gut feeling tonight was to play here. He went, and I changed my mind. He says. That's my that's my my bad. He said, I promise you you'll play the next two I'm gonna start here the next two games, which were Ukraine and Brazil, the next two home games at Wembley. And then as you all know, the the tackle the next week, obviously that was never gonna happen. So so uh, you know, the England manager told me I was going to play in the next two games. And the other interesting thing I was gonna ask about, Steve, is there's always a lot of, uh, mentioned about club over country when players go away and, and go to the England training camp. Is that something you ever sort of saw when you were there with the England team? I think there's an element of that, but there was a definite Man United against everybody else. That that was that was really apparent because all the other lads from the other clubs all mixed together, but the Man United lads they all sat on the same table. I'm, I've got to say. Uh, the Neville brothers were fantastic with me, as was David. So that, that's um, that's obviously not a criticism on, in any way, shape or form about those. Is, but obviously, they were united. They had their own table. Liverpool were a bit like that as well. Liverpool were very similar. They had their own table. Obviously, they were the two titans of the game at the time. And then everybody else sort of made up the numbers around on the tables around them. I say made up the numbers. I was sat with next to Alan Shearer. So you can only say Big Al was uh, making up the numbers, can you really, in all honesty. But... But in terms of where he played at the time, there wasn't a big contingent uh, from Newcastle. So he was, you know, he and obviously he was the captain as well at, at the time. But yeah, I mean, that, that, it was a it was a very friendly experience. I, you know, it, it's something obviously I will never forget. And it's a great story when I tell my when I when I do my uh, my daughter's speech at a wedding. You know, the day she's born, I'm having I'm having dinner with David Beckham for two. I don't think many people could say that about on their daughters, but on the day their daughter's born. There's some really funny stories there, Steve Hilarious, and, and you're absolutely right. Not many people will be able to say that on their daughter's wedding. Moving on now, um, and it seems such a shame to move on to this subject, especially as we just spoke about how Kevin Keegan was going to play you in the next two games. But take want to go back to that day. Um, when the tackle did come in from Nicky Summerby, and what were your feelings and on the day when you were on the pitch and after the injury? Did did you think it was as serious as it it then turned out to be? Well, actually, this began at Sunderland away the season before, where I saw a video okay. of the game recently. Yeah, and if you if you saw some of the tackles that went in on me, X X rated wouldn't cover it. They, uh, seven or eight yeah. leg breakers went in on me, and and I've seen them. Again, and Gordon said to me half time, he told me off for not protecting myself. He said, Because they're trying to do you. And I went, Well, it's you know, it's what the way I play. I can't, I can't, I can't yeah. change the way I play. Do I yeah. duck out? Do I duck out tackles? Do I be a coward all of a sudden? I, I can't be that way. It's just not me. So when we played, and I'd had, I'd had history with Nicky over many years. We played when I was at Aston Villa, he played for Swindon. Um, then when I was in the champ- in championship with Wolves, he was playing in the champ- with the championship club. So we, our car- careers followed each other all the time. And we always used to w- wind each other up all the time because we played on the same side as each other. Um, and he always used to lose his rag pretty easily. So I, I, I kind of knew. And, and I was playing in a position I really wanted to be. I was playing left back. So I'm yeah. really happy. Started the game really well against Sunderland. 
and then the, the, the tackle happened and, you know, <laughs> it's not really a lot I can say. I, I've never seen the challenge ever since it happened. So not once right. have I ever seen the tackle. I can yeah. only go by what other people have told me that it was pretty horrible. But, you know, I, I did, I've never really wanted to watch it. But I didn't know no, at that time. Because you, you forget, I'd, I'd had two or three occasions in my past where I'd been snapped in off by horrendous challenges yeah. um, from other players at both previous clubs of mine. So I kind of thought, oh, God, I, I could be out for two or three months here. But, hey, I'll be back. What, what can I do? Um, yeah. And, and actually, I did play. I, I, I did make a semi-comeback. See, the history yeah. would show that I played against Aston Villa. Yeah. Um, I played against Chelsea away. I played against Derby. All at left back, all the same positions. But my ankle wasn't right. I was, I was carrying it. I knew I was carrying something. Then, then it was a Villa Park. Another, a challenge from Big Hugo Ehiel, God bless him, no longer with us. And and then it went. So my ankle was hanging by a thread and it just completely went. And I, I knew then mm, that there's something really serious wrong here. And, it, you know, it ended up, I had to have another ankle ligament reconstruction, which I'd had one sort of five years earlier. Um, and, you know, that, that was it, really. How difficult was the injury to deal with mentally, Steve? Every every injury is difficult to deal with mentally, mm. especially as I was in the England squad, and, and 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 this actually happened. So the next England squad, Keegan called me up again, yeah. and I, and I and I, rightly or wrongly, mm. I said to I said to Gordon, look, I know I'm probably not going to play, but I want to give myself every chance to get in the England squad just to prove to everyone that wasn't a one off a fluke. He wants me back yeah. in because he, he's told me he's going to play me the next two games. So I, mm. I want everyone to know that actually he wants me in that squad for another time. Um, so I went down, had treatment. It didn't improve, came back to the club, kept breaking down for the next sort of two, three, four weeks. It, there was something not right. So anyway, when I went to see a specialist, he said, no, you, you, when they did all the scans, I needed a, an ankle ligament reconstruction, which was probably going to keep me out for eight, eight nine months, perhaps, at that time. Um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, I, I'd been used to, disappointments with injuries. I'd been used to the mental toughness it is to, to get on with it. Thankfully, I had Darren Grucock, who, who kept me entertained and worked, worked hard with me in the gym. You know, so I, I was planning, you know, to, I came back physically much bigger from lifting weights with Daz, thinking when I come back, I'm going to be a, you know, a different player. I'll be much stronger. I'm, I'm going to make use of my time in the gym here. Mm. Um, and then, you know, a, a period of time went by and I, I actually, I, I firmly now I know that, that uh, Stu Colley, he knew I, I was never going to play again. And I think what the club had done, they decided that I had to come to terms with it by myself. And I remember we, we was going up to Manchester, and this is quite a few months, and I, I kept making comebacks in training. It kept going, it kept, like, my ankle just kept going, and there was, you know, just nothing, it just didn't feel right, and I couldn't run, do anything. Mm. And, and actually, first time I openly admitted to Stu, I said, look, can I be honest, I, I don't think I'm going to play again. And he looked at really me hard. And, he, and he went, you're not, son. And whilst it sounds really weird, it was the biggest weight lifted off my shoulder because I've, I've been yeah. fighting with myself mentally for like five, six months thinking, I don't think I'm going to play again. Is, is someone actually going to tell me you're not going to play again? There's something really yeah. bad with your ankle. There's nothing else we can do to your ankle. And when I went up to the up to the guy, Man, the, the specialist in Manchester, they, that's when they told me, yeah, you'd never play again. But I'd already mentally agreed with Stuart in the car. 
I was going up for this guy to tell me I wasn't going to play again. So, uh, right. again, re really strange. And it was the quietest two and a half hour uh, journey on the way back because the physio was brilliant. Loved Stu to bits. He was a fantastic physio. He, he was brilliant in terms of uh, ma managing people and looking after people, but a really great guy as well. And then the club gave me some time off because I, I was in shock. I, the fact I accepted it, I had to sort out, wow, you know, I'm never actually going to kick a ball ever again. It, it was a realisation of having to know that at the age of 27, I was at the time, I'd yeah. never play football ever again. It's, it, it's, it must, you know, can't, can't really, um, like you say, you've put it into words, but it, it's very hard, isn't it, to to explain all of the emotions and and, and that that you would have been going through. Um, you mentioned then about the retirement and you you kind of perhaps built up to that. Um, did that didn't make it any easier, but did it did it help to sort of plan for sort of what come next? No, because I didn't consider. You know, even though I thought I might not play again, never considered the eventuality of of actually having to get a real job in the real world. Having just been playing with David Beckham and Paul Scholes only a few months before, mm. that just it just couldn't register. And then the club, you know, the club. Were, I mean, the, you know, the club. I just can't fault them. They were so good to me. They 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 offered me a job as uh, press control officer at Sky Blues because I was always decent with the press. I'd, I'd always done a lot of work with the press when I was a player. And I, t I thought, oh great, I, I can stay in football. But what I realised very quickly was it was the worst job I could have taken in the world. You imagine going to the dress room every day, getting the sympathy from your teammates. They know that they can't possibly feel what I felt inside. And every day I went into the training ground, it was like I was self-torturing myself because I was watching them go out train and it was something I couldn't do. And in the end, I went to Brian Richards and said, look, I said, chairman, I said, look, I said, I think, I think for, for my own health, I need to leave the club. I have to get away from here. I said, this is slowly killing me inside by seeing what I can't do every day. I need to rebuild my life again. And at that time as well, in between all that, my dad had died age 49 from a massive heart attack. So I was going through so many things that were just horrendous. Um, and I, I needed to have a break from football. I needed to walk away from the game, come home, spend some time with my wife and my kids and, and take stock and, and think, like, what, where next? What next? What am I going to do? Yeah, I was going to come on to that role, Steve, uh, but you've pretty much summed it up and mentioned it. But it must have been difficult to be around playing staff, um, doing your media engagements, but still being around the squad and the changing room. And as you mentioned, on match days. Well, it was. I, I, I could tell I was, I was, I was sort of, I, I had anger building inside. I remember uh, I was working with a girl called Alison Rowan, who was a brilliant girl who I worked with on the, on the media side. One of the press guys, I won't name his name, was so obnoxious to her. And I, I overheard him say it that literally I nearly knocked him out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was that point I realised, hmm, I probably need to walk away from this because I'm, I'm getting angry with everything. And yeah. I, because I just couldn't understand why somebody would be so rude to, to, to Ali Someone when else. she, was, she yeah. was just trying to do a job. There was absolutely no, she didn't do anything wrong. So I, I literally pinned this guy up against the wall in the, in the corridor. And I thought, mm, I, might, I might need to move on now. <laughs> <laughs> it's been well documented, uh, Steve, that you bumped into Nicky Summerby and you found a way to forgive him. Um, talk us through that encounter a little bit, Steve, if you don't, if you don't mind. Yeah, I've been, I've been working in the press. So, so my hobby job, I, I should say, is I, I work for 
Radio Five Live, WM, Radio yeah. London. But my main job is I'm a mortgage advisor. Not many people know that's my day job. Okay. So, so it was it was my hobby hobby thing doing the, the the media. And we was at the Etihad this one day, and obviously, Nicky's dad was a great player in his day for for Man City. Yeah, Mike's he was, wasn't he? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, of course, I've seen him from thirty yards, and he's looked up at me. And he's gone white. I mean, literally, he, 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 the colour drained from his face. And I went up, I remember, I was there with my colleague, and my colleague was a bit worried what I was going to do. Because so since I left football, I'd, I'd put, packed on a bit of weight. So I, 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 I carried on the gym mentality. So I'd, I'd lift, I lifted loads of weights. I, I was up to 14 stone. So I, I, at six foot and 14 and a half stone-ish mm. at the time, I was quite a yeah. big unit. So he was. He looked at me, and I was steaming towards him, and I put my hand out to shake his hand. And his first words were, "I thought you were going to kill me." <laughs> and I went, "I said life's too short, Nicky." And he went, "He said, he said to be fair, he said if it's any consolation, he said the Coventry fans have absolutely annihilated me every time I've gone anywhere near near, near their <laughs> fans at all. Yeah. Even if I see him on a even if I see him on a plane or a bus, they they just slaughter me." <laughs> <laughs> so I, I said. And, and, and for me, the great, the big thing is life. I, I see people that get eaten up with bitterness in life. And mm. I look, I look my, my career, I look at nothing as, a, as an absolute joy and a privilege. So to play from the age of 18 to 27, nine years with three great clubs. Um, in, I, I have nothing to complain about whatsoever. So why would I want to eat myself up with bitterness at the rest of my days about something I can't change? And so I, I've always had that mentality. Move on. I had a brilliant time. I'm not. I'm not going to hold. No, I'm not going to be bitter towards Nikki. It happened. What can you do? And that is it. That you know, I had to walk away from that situation. I tell you what, I felt really good about myself after I'd done that. It was again another weight off my shoulder, and I could. It was one, another one of those blocks in my life where I could, I could just move on, and I was happy to do so. You're listening to Sky Blues Extra. And what else have you done since retiring, uh, Steve? I've, I, actually, I've done a few things. Um, I was a personal trainer for four or five years. Um, I, I've, I've, I've had two or three. Bit. Well, I actually owned a driving range and we built a golf course with uh, Dave Kelly. Remember, remember, remember Dave Kelly playing for Newcastle? I do, Newcastle? yeah. yeah a good striker. Good striker, yeah. yeah. So I, I, own, I own bits of pockets of land with Dave. So we, we have that, we've had that business for 20 years that we do little bits and pieces around the area. So... I, I have interest in quite a few things. Obviously, the media. I stopped last year. I decided to have a sabbatical from that after doing being involved in football. You know, basically from the age of sixteen, I, I just needed a mental break from the game yeah. because my, my my day job was getting increasingly busier. So I, I needed to give that my full attention, really. So, yeah, yeah. I've, I've tried a few things, and, and like twenty years this year, I've retired, and I've, so I've, I've been I've been in Civvy Street for twenty years. So I've been double the length of time that I ever was a footballer. So if anyone caught, you know, I can genuinely say, yeah, I've, I've seen both sides of of life um, mm. as, a, as a player and having to do real jobs in the real world. And do you still sort of spend time watching football now? I know you said you mentioned there about media, you sort of stepped away, but do you still still follow the game closely? And do you still have like an affinity to the Midlands clubs that you play for? Yeah, uh, the, the, fir- the first results I always look for are the three teams I play for. And, and the, the, the question I get asked a lot, who was your favourite team? And it's like being asked, who's your favourite child? And the reason yeah. that is, I loved every club. I, I had a great, yeah. I, you know, when I look at what, I, what happened at every club, 
I had a brilliant time at every single one. I, I, I know some some players, I know they have one horror experience at one club where it totally falls apart and doesn't work out for them. But that never happened at any of the clubs I was at. So I, I can't say, you know, I don't like that club or I don't like that. So I always say I look at all three equally. I'm delighted when they're all doing well, you know, and that, that really cheers me up if, if all three are, are doing well. What do you think of the uh, job Mark Robbins has done for the Scarboroughs this season, Steve? Well, brilliant. Um, and mm. it's funny because actually I mentioned Dave Kelly. He was his assistant manager at one, uh, what, what was his previous club? Huddersfield, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so Dave Kelly knows Mark really well because he'd worked with him previously. Um, and yeah, I mean, he's done a great job. When you consider he's managed to do all this without a stadium of our own, I think it's remarkable. I think, mm. it's, I think it's truly remarkable what he's done and you know, as an ex-player, it was it was so galling to see the team get relegated and further down, and and, and you know to the point where I said to my you know, my son dad said it became like dad you used to play for country like like they were always in league league two yeah you know it, it, it was at an age where he didn't re- remember them ever being in the Premier League and I went son yeah. one day one day because football cyclical they'll get they'll get back into the big time again one day. I didn't think they'd be in the championship as quick as they are now, if I'm no. honest with you. Mm-hmm. But again, massive step up. The championship is a huge step up. You know, the quality of the teams are there to see. There's some big spenders, big money just to compete. Coventry will have to be at their very best next year. And Mark mm-hmm. will know that. He'll know, you know, it will not be a walk in the park. I think next year would have to be more of a, a consolidation season rather than thinking they'll get promoted, I would imagine. What, what do you make yeah. of them? playing in uh, Birmingham, uh, Steve? Well, as I'm an ex-Aston Villa Wolves player, probably not the best. If... <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but actually, I've, you know, we've got to be really thankful for Birmingham City because they gave our club a chance to, to play football. They did, yeah. I know in, in, a, in a place where the pitch was great, they were well looked after, the fans went down. You know, not, not ideal for anybody, but, you know, extremely grateful to Birmingham City for, for giving us the opportunity. Be, without Birmingham, we wouldn't be in the championship now. I, I just hope that, that we can get back to the Rico or, or get some semblance of normality because in the championship, the club will get much bigger, much mm. bigger um, crowds, you know, yeah. and, and, and that financially will benefit the football club. It will give them a foundation for the future. And, and that's really what they need to. So whatever happened, they need to all bang their heads together very, very long and hard and sort out a solution to get them back where they belong. And you spoke there about the sort of chances of um, Coventry in the championship. Like It is going to be a huge, huge step up. The the, the teams that went up from, from League, League One the, the season before, they're all sort of sat currently in the championship bottom three. Um, for whatever reason, spending is probably one of them. What do you think is, you know, what do you think is the key factor for Coventry if they are to remain in, in the championship next season? To play good football. I mean, most teams in the championship now are good football in size. Well, Coventry have proved that. Keeping hold, hold of the best players, that, that, that's been a traditional big problem for Coventry in recent seasons. You know, they get a good player, they've sold them on. They need yeah. to keep, they, they can't afford to do that in the championship. They really can't. They have to build a squad around certain players. So, um, you know, I, I think anything around mid-table will be an enormous success because oh, the, the yeah. championship is such an enormous step up. If you know, if they can, if they can avoid relegation, first and foremost, brilliant first season gives them something to build on. Um, 
but I just hope expectations aren't too high because it, it we, we are it's a different beast in the in the in the championship. The squads are much bigger, you know. It's more relentless. The games that that go on in that league, and you know that the quality and the pressure they put you under is 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 very difficult. There's some great teams in there. Do you think uh, they will ever get back to the Premier League, the Sky Blues, or do you think the financial landscape has changed too much in the modern day game, Steve? It pains me to say I think the financial landscape is such nowadays that, mm. I mean, you, you, teams that throw stupid amounts of millions of pounds at it can't stay mm. in, the, in the Premier League. So what chance really, I, I mean, even Bournemouth, when you look at Bournemouth, if, you, if you're thinking about Bournemouth as an unfancy club when they went up, but they've got a very rich chairman who, who you know, they, they go out and buy £10 million players regularly. So Burnley as well, you know, they, it, even though they've they've done it, whilst retaining pretty much a sensible budget mm-hmm. in the last two or three years, they've started to really try and throw money at it. So yeah. Coventry won't, well, they're not in that league. And if they're not playing at home and generating, maximizing their potential in terms of attendances and making, you know, th- th- those, those income incomes that they should be making, th- they'll never compete. Yeah. Let, you know, it'd be hard enough in the championship, let alone the Premier League. Mm. Exactly. It's almost like they have to get back or back to the Rico or get their own stadium to finance something going forward to get us back in the Premier League, isn't it? A sensible thing for Coventry would be, and I think this is being highly realistic, is whether they get back to the Rico or another stadium. Mm. They probably need two, three, four years of consistency in the Championship of actually staying in that league and slowly building on on the the type of the players they can bring in and, and... I think this is a longer process. I mean, I, I, you know, I remember my time at Wolves and mm. we had some brilliant players. We, we, we had one of England's strikers in Steve Ball playing for us and we couldn't get out of the division. We had, we had England internationals, Jeff Thomas, Tony Daly in the yeah. squad. We yeah. couldn't get out of the league. So, you know, I, I know how tough it is. It's probably harder to get out of the, the, the championship than it is probably to, in many ways to stay in the Premier League, I think. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Coventry will have that difficulty because they are not on the same financial playing field as everybody else. Mm. Yeah, I think because we've just been promoted, your, your heart rules over your head quite a lot, I think, times in these sort of situations. But I think you're bang on the money there. I think what we need to do in the next couple of seasons or three or four seasons is just consolidate in the championship and then hopefully if we can, if we keep hold of Mark, which would be difficult, obviously, because he'd be a sort of manager, we can go from there and maybe get the playoffs and that might be a route to the Premier League, maybe. Yeah, I mean, Mark comes across as the sort of manager that wants to build something. And, yeah. and if, if he can get a ground where he can start building something, I, I, don't, I don't see Mark... I mean, if you think about it, he's moved away before and he's come mm. back. So he obviously hasn't worked out entirely to his liking wherever else he's been. Yeah. So Coventry's kind of his... his Safe ground, isn't it? He knows mm. he's, he knows he could be successful at the ground. He just needs the tools to be able to improve the side. I think the day he'll become frustrated is, is if that stops. He needs yeah. to be allowed to continue growing the club, building it the way it has been, and, 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 and do the job he wants to do. I think that's really important. Brilliant. And Steve, that brings us to the end of the show. I just want to say thank you for coming on tonight and sharing your Sky Blue story. I know it's been. Listen, it's been absolutely great. I mean, some of the things I've said tonight, people would never have known. They wouldn't have realised because I've, I've, you know, I, only my close circle of friends know some of the things that happened during that time. Mm. So, um, it, it it was just 
really sad that my Sky Blues career ended the way it did. It, I had so much more to give, so much more good stuff around the corner. Um, there's not really a lot I can say other than that, in honesty. I loved my time at Sky Blues. The, the, the club were great to me when I retired. You know, I loved everything about being there. And I say it was, it was just a real tragedy. that It all ended so quickly. Yeah, and it was, it was fascinating, especially to hear your sort of insight into the, the England setup as well. And 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 it was yeah yeah tra- tragic really like you know talking through it the, of how that that ended but like you say you'd you'd always have that meal with with David Beckham yeah I mean, yeah and obviously knowing you know the, the fact that yeah. I did get called up in the England squad I, yeah. the only thing the only positive I can take out of it I literally retired at the top of my game I wasn't one of those players who ended up drifting down the leagues and just ended up playing for the sake of playing I can honestly say I quit at the top and that's it. Yeah. I, and that makes me happy knowing that. And listeners, if you're enjoying the podcast, we encourage you to review the show using your preferred platforms, submit your feedback and help us improve some of the future shows. You can also join in with a conversation by sharing and commenting on our Twitter, Instagram and Facebook pages. Just use the hashtag SkyBluesExtraPodcast. Thanks for listening to the Sky Blues Extra podcast. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. We understand that the journey as a supporter isn't always smooth sailing, but rest assured you're not alone. There's a vast network of fellow fans who share your passion and may be experiencing similar challenges. Honesty is key in any relationship. If your friend asks you how you are feeling, tell them honestly. If you're going through a difficult time, let them know. Opening up about how you are feeling can really make a difference. After all, they are your mates for a reason. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.